right, thank you so much for that. Genesis 45, while the children are being dismissed, Genesis chapter 45. Love to see children, amen, in the ministry, part of our church. I like you old fuddy-duddies too, but I like children as well, amen. We have as a church family gone through a rough week. Two funerals of our own in one week. Uh, this morning, finding uh, we've been praying for Jerry's brother Martin, and he has passed away as well. As, as a pastor, I get a front row seat to the hurts and the suffering of God's people. And it grieves me to see it. There are times like these, I wish, I wish I had some way to take away the burdens and just to remove them off the shoulders, but I can't. That's a little bit above my pay grade. I'm not able to do uh, that. I've had to face that fact. But I do know a God who's a God of comfort. I do know a God who's a God... Uh, with a purpose for each and every one of us. One who makes my love for people seem like hate in comparison. The reality is that pain and suffering is part of the human experience. The Bible tells us in Job, Job 5, 7, Yet a man is born unto trouble as the sparks that fly upward. It also says uh, in John sixteen thirty three, Jesus said this, In the world ye shall have tribulation. As long as we're here, we're going to have tribulation. But the verse doesn't stop there. Uh, he says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Hallelujah. I want to take some time this morning and just give a weak attempt to gain some perspective on dealing with suffering. Because we live in a fallen world. Nothing works as it is supposed to. Sin has stained every part of the physical universe. Uh, sin has infected the human bloodstream. Things break. We grow old and die. People kill each other. Families are broken. Our leaders disappoint us. Our friends turn into our enemies. It happens all the time because of the sin that is within our midst. When hard times come, there are only two choices. You can be a student or you can be a victim. A student says, what can I learn from this? A victim says, why is this happening to me? We've got to choose as to how we look at the trouble in our life. These really are the only two options that we have. Now with that in mind, I want to ask a question. How does God bring good out of evil and suffering? I want to use a, a word we don't use very often. I might have used it from the pulpit here before, but uh, a word that we not in our daily conversation but it, God interposes himself into our situation so that he might bring good out of our tragedy. The dictionary definition of the word interpose is to place or insert between one thing and another. In other words, God actively involves himself in the very worst moments of our life. I'm the first to admit I can't always explain that eternal question, why? I hear it all the time. Pastor, why is this? Or why is... I can't answer the question, why? Perhaps no one in this life can understand how this works. But we have faith in God that He in His wisdom knows what He is doing. Our suffering, friends, is not random and without purpose. 
I don't believe in a world marked by death, sadness, evil, that God is just a passive observer or a powerless observer. He works behind the scenes to, 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 to bring about ends that are for our good and for His glory. The question of pain and suffering, though, is one of the biggest challenges to the Christian faith. If you, if you have a habit of witnessing to people, you're going to hear it all the time. I, I do it, and on a common basis I hear this. A questioning God. It's really one of the greatest arguments of the skeptics and the atheists out there. Uh, it's called the trilemma. Uh, the argument is set up by stating three things that we believe as Christians and then saying they cannot coexist with one another. Uh, fact number one, God is all-powerful. He can do anything He wants to do. Fact number two, God is all-loving. He intensely values His creation. Fact number three, suffering is an all-pervading part of this world. Now, the skeptics would tell us that that argument, or their argument is that these contradict each other, and so those, those, those cannot all be true. Now, we believe every single one of them. God is all-powerful, God is all-loving, and yes, there is suffering in this world. But their argument is, if God is all-powerful, then He could remove your suffering, and if God is all-loving, then He would remove your suffering. And so, because there is suffering, one of these statements is untrue. This is the trilemma. Now, I have a question for you before we come back to that. Does love always mean giving someone everything they want? Hello, parents. <laughs> Have you ever parented before? Does love mean giving something or your child everything that they want? Let me ask you this question. Is eliminating pain always the loving thing to do? I'm thinking of a girl named Ashlyn, lived in Atlanta, Georgia. She has a disease called CIPA, C-I-P-A, congenital insensitivity to pain with anhydrosis. Uh, she can feel no pain. Now you might think, well, that's a blessing, not being able to feel pain. But for her, this presented all kinds of problems. And in fact, it's a nightmare to her parents. She could be playing soccer, step on a nail, get an infection, and unless they examine her, they never even find out about it because she can't feel any pain. Parents have to examine her from head to toe every night before she goes to bed to see if there's something there that could cause a problem. She could lay her hand on a red-hot stove and never even realize that anything's happening because she can't feel pain. Her mother was interviewed on television, and this is what she said, and I quote, The problem that this has caused in her life, and the possibility of even worse things to come, I pray every night, Lord, please let my daughter feel pain. Now, if in our finite minds, we can see the role that pain plays in showing us that something is wrong, is it not possible that God in His infinite wisdom allows pain in our lives for a reason? Back to the trilemma. The problem can be better resolved if we don't start to limit the attributes of God. Yes, those are attributes of God, but God has a few more attributes as well. Uh, he is all-powerful. He is all-loving. What if we add into the equation that God is also all-knowing, all-wise, and the fact that God is eternal? Evil is not eternal. Friend, your suffering is not eternal. Your suffering exists in time. It can't always be there. And let us not make the mistake, then, of holding God before the bar of our wisdom and our timetable. And with all this in mind, that's just my introduction. 
I'm just getting started, okay? Let's go to Genesis chapter 45 and look at verse number 4. With all that in mind, the Bible says, And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I, will, I pray to you. And they came near, and he said, I am Joseph your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt. Now therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in which there shall neither be earing nor harvest. Look at verse number 7. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth to save your lives by a great deliverance, dealing with suffering. Father, today I pray that you'd help us in these few moments we have to gain a biblical perspective in this area. Help me to challenge with your word, Lord. I have nothing to offer myself, but your word certainly does, and we pray that it would work in Jesus' name. Amen. Joseph had been hated, envied, betrayed, sold into slavery by his own brothers. As he was dragged into a foreign land as a slave, he was, uh, he was uh, tied to a, a man named Potiphar in his household, and there he was falsely accused and imprisoned. His life is one of unfairness, betrayal, pain, trial. Years go by, and every time he thinks it cannot get worse, guess what happens? It gets worse. And then it gets worse, and then it gets worse. And he just continues to go down in a path of trial. He finds himself in a prison cell, forgotten by the very ones that he has helped. Then one day, the top guy, Pharaoh himself, has a dream. And one of Pharaoh's workers remembers that he had a dream in prison and this guy down in prison told him what his dream meant and certainly that came true and so the light went on and he says, I, I was supposed to say something about him, kind of forgot about that, but hey Pharaoh, I know someone who can tell you what your dream means and they pulled Joseph up out of prison, they set him before Pharaoh and, that, and, that, and Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dream. Pharaoh makes Joseph basically the second in command in the world at that time. So Joseph wakes up in the morning, a prisoner, forgotten, alone, in the depths of depravity, and he goes to bed that night, and he's the second most powerful man in the world. The famine came that Joseph predicted. Well, God, through Joseph, predicted. It stretches back further and further as the famine happens, uh, the, the uh, dev devastation goes further and further, and it reaches all the way back into where Joseph's brothers and his father lives. And you know the story. They come to see if they can get food. They need to survive. And so everybody is coming to Egypt to get food because they have uh, been forewarned and so they have prepared this great, uh, they've saved up for the seven years. You remember the story. And so Joseph's brother come into town and they, uh, we, we need to get food. They say, if you want food, you've got to go see this young man. His name is Zaphnath Paaniah. So they go to see Zaphnath Paaniah, and he's the guy in charge of everything. They don't know, though, that this young Egyptian, Zaphnath Paaniah, who's in charge of distribution, is none other than the brother that they sold into slavery 22 years ago. The brother knows, but they don't. I remember I visited my grandmother. We were shunned when I was saved as a child, and I hadn't seen my grandmother for years, and so I hadn't seen her since I was nine, and when I was uh, an adult, I went and, and visited her. And when she opened the door, or my grandfather actually opened the door, 
I instantly recognized him, but he did not know me because I was younger and had grown up. You know how that goes. And so this was the case with Joseph here. They did not recognize him, but he recognized them. As time goes on, Joseph sends the Egyptians away. He reveals himself to his brothers. Understandably, uh, they are terrified to meet their brother that they sold into slavery, who's now top dog number two. I mean, he's a second in command. You understand, friend, he could do anything he wanted to them. He could throw them in prison. He could have them beheaded. He could have them tortured. He could make them slaves. He could do whatever he wanted to with them. And they were worried about it. By the way, the temptation must have been there just a little bit after all they had done to him. But he summarizes and explains their betrayal in such a way as to rescue them in verse 8. So now... It was not you that sent me hither, but God. Let me tell you, friends, Joseph served a really, really big God. This is either a statement of delusion or a statement of faith. He did not gloss over their sin, but he only mentioned it in that they could be pardoned from it. He, he basically, he says, I haven't forgotten your treachery. You did what you did because you wanted to hurt me, but God allowed it to happen to accomplish a purpose that none of us could foresee. His view of God, now listen to this, his view of God was so big that his view of his own suffering was diminished. He held God in such high esteem. Oh, this is good. Now look at how God interposes himself. How does God involve himself with evildoers? What did Joseph mean when he said that God sent him. Let's look at three different works here. The work of man, the work of Satan, the work of God. The work of man, Joseph's brothers were entirely motivated by malice and by evil. They could not stand this young, young twerp who kept having dreams. You know, hey, I dreamed that, that uh, I was the moon and you were the stars and you all bowed to me. How would you like a young brother come up and tell you about that? You'd have a knuckle sandwich waiting for him just about like they did. They wanted nothing to do with this young guy who kept on acting like he was going to rule over them or having these dreams. and so. But as long as they were under Jacob's direct control, Joseph was safe. But when Joseph went out to find them, and they were off the property, they were away from dad, suddenly their jealousy boiled to the surface here. They planned to kill him, but God interposed himself. Midianite traders came along. As the story unfolds, others enter the picture. Potiphar his wife, later the butler and the baker, still later Pharaoh. We could spend hours today talking about the fact of all the things that God did to prepare Joseph. You think it was an accident that Joseph, the future ruler of Egypt, would be in Potiphar's home, which was the king, one of the king's right-hand people, the chief of his guard? You think it was an accident that as he's down in jail and and you, you just talk and talk and talk and visit with those around him, there's nothing else to do, well, he sticks down to them... The butler and the baker, both key people in the goings-on of the palace that Joseph could learn from and basically be in school and not even know it. I mean, these things weren't happenings. God arranged these things. God interposed himself into his life. Now, they, all these people acted according to their own inclinations, but all in accordance with God's plan. Now, I, I know I've made, I hopefully make this clear routinely. I am not a Calvinist. I do not believe that God has created certain people for hell and certain people for heaven. The Bible says, whosoever, 
will come, whosoever will, let him come. And so I've always said the elect are the whosoever wills, the non-elect are the whosoever wants, all right? But, uh, so I don't believe that God has created certain people to do certain evil things for his uh, purposes. These are choices they made themselves. You say, well, you, you go, one, one of the things, that, examples I use for this is uh, Pharaoh, we're talking Moses Pharaoh. If you read that story, you see sometimes the Bible says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Sometimes the Bible says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then, and I can't remember exactly where the address is found, but then the Bible says that God never hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart every time. You know, what's that all about? Because is it really fair if God's the one hardening Pharaoh's heart? And the best way that I like to illustrate this is if you take the sun on a hot day, we haven't had one of those in a while, but you take the sun on a hot day and you lay on the sidewalk a, a lump of clay and you lay on the sidewalk a lump of ice. One of them will soften, one of them will harden. Same sun, sun's doing the same thing to this clay that it's doing to the ice. And, and I like to look at that fact because God, uh, did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Yes, God hardened Pharaoh's heart because Pharaoh was Pharaoh. Pharaoh made choices. So God hardened Pharaoh's heart by being God. The sun softens the ice by being the sun. It hardens the clay by being the sun, just doing what the sun does. It is the, the heart that is receiving what God does that then is either hardened or softened. God didn't cause the brothers to envy. God didn't cause Potiphar's wife to lust. He didn't cause them to do that. The brothers and the wife did that on their own, but God interposed himself in those situations and brought good out of bad. Amazing how he can do that. That's the work of man. Then the work of Satan. Satan, the Bible says, as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. He possesses great power, but he can do nothing without God's express permission. We see that in the book of Job. It is God who tells the devil to consider his serpent, uh, servant Job, but Satan cannot afflict Job beyond the limits established by God. I like that. Amen. I like that. The devil is powerful, but he's not omnipotent. The devil has great knowledge, but he is not omniscient. And it's comforting to know that Satan has to operate within the limits placed on him by God. And then we see the work of God. Sometimes he uses the deeds of evildoers to further his own plans in the world. When Christ was born, God used the paranoia of Herod to guide the Magi to Bethlehem. Later, he used Herod's slaughter of the innocents to lead Mary and Joseph to Egypt so the scripture could be fulfilled when it said, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then consider the absolute worst thing that could possibly happen. Deicide, killing the very Son of God in human form. Yet even Jesus' death was not some afterthought. Of, uh, with God as if events suddenly got out of his control. <laughs> Can we remember that? That things don't spin out of God's control. God never drinks Maalox and takes antacid pills and worries and frets. He's in control. Even Jesus' death. He died according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, the Bible says. God used the wicked deeds of wicked men in crucifying Jesus to bring salvation to the world. And it begs a question today, friend, that I want you to remember. If he can use the very worst thing that has ever happened in the world to bring about the very best thing that has ever happened in the world, what can he do with your suffering and your trial? He can interpose himself 
and he will. There's comfort in this. The truth that we find here in Genesis chapter 45 needs to be ingrained in our understanding so that when trouble comes our way, all of us, by the way, will have trouble come our way. You're either in the middle of a trial, you've just gotten out of a trial, or you're about to go into a trial. You're welcome. I'm glad I could help encourage you today. But uh, that's just the way life is, isn't it? So when trouble comes out of our way, we don't fold under the pressure and we don't just allow our faith to just dissipate into nothing. We can hold on if we understand the truths of Genesis 45. Our troubles do not happen by accident. We'll experience personal tragedy. Sometimes we'll be the victim of betrayal. And if we focus on that, focus only on our present suffering. We're doomed to dwell in the mire of bitterness. There is a great freedom in recognizing that God is in control. And when that happens to us and we realize that, it will shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. And we understand that God allows these things in our life. Romans 8.29. Why is Romans 8.28 in the Bible? All things work together for good because of Romans 8.29. He wants to form and shape us into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. When we find, when we recognize that and accept that, our reliance on God is strengthened. Our dependence on the things of the world are lessened. We're able to say with the psalmist, Psalm 119.57, Thou art my portion, O Lord. Job, after he lost everything. I'm amazed at, I've been reading Job lately, and, and just, the, just the amazing story, how a man could go through everything he went through, and he could say at the end, the Lord gave. The Lord had taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That should be our testimony too. We can re realize our troubles not happen by accident. Secondly, we can see good where others can only see evil. Joseph, I think this was the secret in his life. He saw God everywhere. He was so he had such a profound sense of God's presence. He realized that no matter what happened, God still loved him. God still was in control. That's how he could tell his brothers, so now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. The same was true with uh, Potiphar's wife and her false accusation. Joseph truly believed that it was more important to please God than to have pleasant circumstances. <laughs> That's what we want to change, isn't it? Circumstances come, the trials come, the troubles come. We want deliverance. Sometimes God wants development. We want deliverance. We have a reason then to forgive those who hurt us. Can I tell you, and this is a... Look, nobody here but us today, so I'll be honest with you. Sometimes the aha moments don't come in our life. Sometimes they're suffering. We don't have an answer why. We don't have the reason for it. Not every story has an explanation. When I was growing up, do you remember the Aesop's fables stories when you were growing up? I'd hear these, uh, dad would tell me the stories sometimes. One of my favorites was the, the uh, crow that was sitting in a tree branch, branch with a piece of cheese and the fox came underneath. Remember that story? The fox starts to flatter. Oh, you're so beautiful. He wanted the cheese. He didn't care about the crow. You're so beautiful. Oh, a lady as beautiful as you must have a beautiful voice. And he just kept flattering. He just kept flattering. And finally the crow was so puffed up with pride that she sang out with a beautiful, Aah! you know, the cheese falls to the ground and the fox snatches it up. The, the 
Moral of the story, the flatterer lives at the expense of those who will listen to him. There's a purpose, there's a moral, there's a reason. Preacher, that's great, but my story doesn't have one. I don't have an explanation for mine. And, and that's true. Many of us, even our time on earth, we won't know these things. But if we believe, if we truly have faith that God is in control, then you can have faith through that difficulty. You can forgive those that hurt you. To forgive means to choose not to remember. And that's only possible, as Joseph did with his brothers, if we see that our enemies, God has allowed them to do what they've done. He's allowed them uh, for reasons we may never understand. And you might be sitting here and listening and saying, that's impossible. Can I remind you of the words of Jesus as they were driving the nails into his hands? Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Oh, we can forgive. And we should. We have a new admiration for God's wisdom in all things. Most of the time, we don't know the immediate reasons for our sufferings, but the Bible does give us some long-term reasons or some, some big-picture reasons. Where it's, that One reason is repentance. Suffering is a call for us and for others to turn from the things of earth to thoughts of eternity. Luke chapter 13, verse 4 and 5. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago in a different setting, but that those 18, the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Remember that story? And they asked Jesus about it. And Jesus said, oh, those 18 whom the Tower of Siloam fell and slew them. And presumably this was an accident. Presumably this was like a small-scale 9-11. I mean, a, a building collapsed and killed 18 people. Think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? Jesus answers, I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. We tend to think sometimes that there's a tragedy because maybe they deserved it. But in this instance here, Jesus says, no, 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 not because they deserved it more. This is a call to repentance. Like pain in your body that tells you something is wrong, the suffering in this world as a result of sin should be a call to repentance. That's the reason many people suffer. Reliance. Not only repentance, but reliance. Suffering is a call to trust God, not the feeble props of this world. Isaiah 41, 13, For I, the Lord, will hold thee with my right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. There's no time like suffering to make us realize that the things of this earth, they really can't support us. They are feeble. They are shaky foundations. We can't put our faith and trust in those things. We only need to rely on the Lord. Righteousness. Job 23.10, but he knoweth the way I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job recognized that God has allowed a severe trial in his life, but he's also confident that when it's over, he will be uh, purified as gold. Righteousness. And then reward. Suffering and the proper response to, to it works out a great reward in heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says, For our light affliction... By the way, none of us would have called what Paul went through light affliction. But Paul said, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. There's reward. There's also reminder. Suffering reminds us that God sent His Son into this world to suffer. It reminds us that our suffering may not be a part of God's condemnation, but a part of His purification. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable 
unto his death. Can I tell you, friend, and I know we say this often, but we have to remember, God only has one son without sin. He has no son without suffering. Everyone, including Jesus Christ, has went through suffering. Don't let the ignorance of the question why cause you to overlook God's purposes. Now, we live this way by faith because we have to. Not everything is explained. Sometimes we can look back years ago. Oh, now I see why God allowed that. Now I see what God was doing, but that's not always the case. Sometimes you'll never get an answer down here. Sometimes you'll never understand the why. But we can live victoriously in a world where tragedy is never far away when we simply put this faith into practice that God is in control, God knows what He is doing, and I will trust in Him. The way that Job did, the way that Joseph did. We choose to believe that God will work in everything that happens to us. Romans 8.28 And we know all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to His purpose. In the chemistry of the cross, God takes things that are in and of themselves bad. He puts it together like a chemist does with chemicals. Chemicals that are deadly, he mixes them with a medicine that brings healing. Uh, This is clearly illustrated in something just as simple as table salt. Table salt is made up of sodium and it's made up of chloride. By itself, sodium is a deadly poison and so is chloride. But put them together and you have table salt. God can take things that are bad and put them into the test tube of His wisdom and His love, and then He can produce something that is not only good for you, but necessary for you. What a glorious promise. He works all things together for His good. We see this in the story of Joseph. Friend, we see this in the story of you. He'll work it out for good. We don't suffer in vain. The unsaved can't say that. The unsaved, they have no hope beyond this world. To those who don't know Christ, bad things happen with really no ultimate purpose. Though you may understand, in the short, we may not understand those that serve the Lord, this is not the case for us. Everything has a purpose. We may not understand it in the beginning, Trust in Him. Trust His Word when He says in Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. The Christian has hope, has hope that the world doesn't. If you're here today, friend, and you don't know that you know that you know, you're on your way to heaven if you die. You don't know your, your eternity has never been settled. You say, I, I hope so, preacher, but you don't know so. I'm talking about a no-so 1 John 5.13, salvation. If you don't know, settle that before you leave today. Oh, I would never ever want to live a day in my life without knowing that there's purpose in what I'm going through and what's happening in my life. We have hope not only in this world, but in the future world. One day, we're going to bless the Lord for His sovereign wisdom when everything is revealed, all the circumstances. There's a lot of whys in your life and mine right now I can't answer. But one day they'll all be answered. I can't wait for that day, amen? Well, that's what God was doing. Now I understand. We just have to have faith and trust in Him. With that confidence, we rest in the Lord now 
knowing that one day we'll understand what he understands now. He understands that now. Why don't we put our faith in someone that knows the future, knows our end, and let's just trust him. Joseph said to his brothers, who sold him into slavery, so now it was not you that sent me thither, but God. We need a God as big as Joseph's God was to him. Do you have unanswered questions today? Well, unfortunately, I can't answer them for you, but I can point you to one who can. I wonder if there's someone in here today, under the sound of my voice, maybe even online, who's allowed the circumstances of life to defeat you. Why don't you let God interpose himself in your situation? Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. The pianist begins to play in a few moments here. I'd like to just challenge you today, friend. If you're here, you don't know for sure that you're on your way to heaven, won't you let somebody take a Bible and show you how you can know? Maybe you're a Christian in here today and you this, this message is all about some of the things you're going through. Struggles, trials, questions. We just need to trust Him. I don't know exactly how this is spoken to you, but the altar's open. Would you stand along with me? Heads bowed, eyes closed as she begins to play. If God's spoken to your heart, won't you?